BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Jimmy Carter just came right out and said what I think has been the subtext, basically, of the Mueller investigation and what a lot of us have been talking about for, well, ever since the election. Well, here's Jimmy Carter saying it himself in his own words. He lost the election. And he was put into office because the Russians interfered on his behalf. It's just that simple. He lost the election, and he was put into office because the Russians interfered. Yeah, on his, on behalf. his behalf. There you go. Uh, Donald Trump is not a legitimate president. He's an illegitimate president. And you know, I agree. I'll just say it out loud. Donald, I don't. I do not believe that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States fair and square or honestly or whatever, you know, whatever the word is. And therefore, I consider him an illegitimate president. I do not consider him my president. I mentioned this last last week, uh, you know, just briefly, but I want to just throw that into the conversation. And and uh, Nate was able to find the, the video of him saying that. And it was a good one. So anyhow, some of your uh, your thoughts on the uh, Republican party turning into uh, no longer being a political party, but merely basically a power machine for billionaires and giant corporations and the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. But first, I wanted to bring in Professor Cass Sunstein. He's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard from 2009 to 2012. He was the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. He's the founder and director of the program on behavioral economics and public policy at the Harvard Law School, the author of numerous books, including his latest, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. And Professor, it's been a while since you've been on the program. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. It's great having you with us. There is a slight delay in the telephone, just to give you a heads up on that. And by the way, I should add your Twitter handle is Cass Sunstein, C-A-S-S-S-U-N-S-T-E-I-N. Your thoughts on impeachment. You've written this book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Lay it out for us. Lay out the argument. Well, the basic argument is that we couldn't have had the Constitution without the impeachment provision, that the Constitution was chosen against the background of the American Revolution, which was an attack on monarchy, actually a literal attack on monarchy. And the idea of impeachment was we would have a powerful executive, as we ended up having, but only on condition that we the people would have not only the four-year election cycle, 
but also an opportunity to say, you know, there's been something that's so egregious that the president can't be president anymore. And this was essential to the survivors of the American Revolutionary experience to thinking that we weren't betraying the principles for which people had lost their lives. You know, Hamilton also wrote in one of the Federalist Papers that the Electoral College would prevent a person of low character from becoming president. Well, is this? Hope. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had two presidents where there's been an attempt to impeach them. You've got uh, Andrew Johnson back in the 1860s and, of course, Bill Clinton. What lessons do you take from those efforts? And Richard Nixon, obviously, in 73, I guess it was. Yeah, I actually think the strongest lessons come from the founding period, and though I'll talk a little bit about Johnson, Clinton, and Nixon, the really important thing in the founding period is that impeachment is for gross abuses of presidential authority. That's the basic target. So if you have something that involved something that wasn't a crime, if you have something that was egregious violation of the president's duty, then you can impeach him. So terrible crime, of course, would be impeachable. Even if we don't have a crime, it would be impeachable if it's an egregious misuse of authority. So I think that's the basic... Yeah, now, my understanding actually is, if I may interrupt just a second, but, you know, just to stay on that topic for a moment, I think it was Lawrence Tribe on this program who said that the phrase high crimes which to our ears sounds like, you know, a serious felony, like shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue or raping somebody on Fifth Avenue. But in fact, in the language of 1787, what high crimes meant were crimes against essentially democracy or crimes against the republic, things that might not be violations of a criminal code, things that you couldn't necessarily go to jail for, but were such egregious abusive office, such egregious crimes, again, the word has a different, slightly different meaning, that that would justify impeachment. And you wouldn't have to prove in an impeachment hearing that an actual crime crime, you know, in the modern sense, was what happened. Is that also your understanding of it, uh, Professor Gassunzi? Completely. That emerges unambiguously from the founding period. So if the president goes on vacation for nine months and doesn't do his job, that's an impeachable offense. That's a misdemeanor, meaning a bad action within the meaning of the Constitution. If the president suppresses civil rights and civil liberties, runs roughshod over the Bill of Rights, that would clearly be impeachable, even though it's not a crime. James Madison was clear that an abuse of the pardon power would be a criminal offense. And it was clear even at the convention that if you obtain the presidency through illegitimate means, for example, by doing something untoward, let's say, with the Electoral College, that would be an impeachable offense. And it wouldn't matter whether it was technically a crime. Now, Jimmy Carter has said that, forgive my interrupting again, but this is a fascinating line of inquiry. Jimmy Carter at a forum at the Carter Center said that it is his opinion that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president, that, you know, this little tiny margin in Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania would not have happened had the Russians not poured all this money and effort into social media and perhaps other ways of messing with our election. And we know now Bill Barr has blocked seven of the investigations that Robert Mueller started, and we have yet to find out what they were. But, you know, is it possible that simply his being elected with the help of foreign... And now there's there's also evidence that uh, Saudi Arabia was messing in the elections, the UAE and individuals in Israel as well. Is it possible that that is impeachable? 
No. So if the president okay. was elected as a result of foreign help, that is definitely not impeachable because, as far as we've discussed so far, he was not coordinating or conspiring with the foreign government to get that help. So we right. need to have an offense, a grave offense, by the president himself. And the Mueller report is very clear that there was no criminal offense between the Trump campaign and Russia. So that would not be a legitimate basis for him. Okay. So to finish up your thoughts on the other impeachment efforts. Okay. So I think the thing to focus on is, has there been an egregious misuse of presidential authority? And this is something we have to ask through a veil of neutrality, meaning we can't think we love President Trump, so of course he shouldn't be impeached, or we despise President Trump, so of course he should be impeached. Those have to be put to one side. This is a very grave matter we're discussing. The second volume of the Mueller report does come very close to finding obstruction of justice with respect to the Russian investigation, and there's no reason that Congress has to agree with the Mueller report, but the fact-finding is sufficiently concerning, and I'm using a very soft word there, sufficiently concerning, that we're very much in the ballpark of legitimating an impeachment inquiry with the kind of solemnness that our commitment to self-government requires. Yeah. So you think that he has already committed impeachable offenses, essentially? Definitely not. So I've been very focused on the Constitution and the American Revolution and not on this particular president. I think that would be uh, the right way to go. And I'm definitely not saying he's committed impeachable offenses. But the Mueller report, the second volume in particular, suggests some very grave actions which would legitimate an inquiry into the question. And if the inquiry were started with clarity that he did or didn't commit impeachable offenses, then it wouldn't be an inquiry. Fascinating stuff. Professor Cass Sunstein, always great talking with you. Twitter handle Cass Sunstein. Professor, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Fascinating conversation. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller report. This is page 114. This is about the meeting in Trump Tower. On June 6 and 7, Trump Jr. and Emin Aglarov had multiple brief calls. Also on June 6, 2016, R.S. Aglarov called Ike Kavaledze and asked him to attend a meeting in New York with the Trump Organization. Kavaledze is a Georgia-born, naturalized U.S. citizen who worked in the United States for the Crocus Group and reported to R.S. Aglarov. Kavaledze told the office that, this is the Mueller office, that in a second phone call on June 6, 2016, Eris Aglarov asked Kavaledze if he knew anything about the Magnitsky Act, and Eris sent him a short synopsis for the meeting and Vetzel Niskaya's business card. According to Kavaledze, Eris Aglarov said the purpose of the meeting was to discuss the Magnitsky Act, and he asked Kavaledze to translate. Subtitle 2, Awareness of the Meeting Within the Campaign. On June 7, Goldstone emailed Trump Jr. and said that, quote, Emin asked that I schedule a meeting with you and the Russian government attorney who is flying over from Moscow, end quote. Trump Jr. replied that Manafort, identified as the, quote, campaign boss, Jared Kushner, and Trump Jr. would likely attend. Goldstone was surprised to learn that Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner would attend. Kevaladze, redacted by Bill Barr, puzzled by the list of attendees and that he checked with Emin Aglarov's assistants, Roman Benyaminov, who said that the purpose of the meeting was for Vetzel Niskaya to convey negative information on Hillary Clinton. 
Beniam Minov, however, stated that he did not recall having known or said that. Early on June 8, 2016, Kushner emailed his assistant asking her to discuss a 3 p.m. meeting the following day with Trump Jr., page 115. Later to that day, Trump Jr. forwarded the entirety of his email correspondence regarding the meeting with Goldstone to Manafort and Kushner under the subject line, Forward Russia, Clinton, Private and Confidential, adding a note that, quote, the meeting got moved to 4 p.m. tomorrow at my offices. Kushner then sent his assistant a second email informing her that the meeting with Don Jr. is 4 p.m. now. Manafort responded, see you then, P. Rick Gates, who was the deputy campaign chairman, stated during interviews with the office, with Mueller's office, that in the days before June 9, 2016, now June 9 is when they had the meeting in Trump Tower, Trump Jr. announced at a regular morning meeting of senior campaign staff and Trump family members that he had a lead on negative information about the Clinton Foundation. Gates believed that Trump Jr. said the information was coming from a group in Kyrgyzstan and that he was introduced to the group by a friend. Gates recalled that the meeting was attended by Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Paul Manafort, Hope Hicks, and joining late, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. According to Gates, Manafort warned the group that the likely meeting would not yield vital information and they should be careful. Hicks denied any knowledge of the June 9 meeting before 2017, and Kushner could not recall if the planned June 9 meeting came up at all earlier that week. Michael Cohen recalled being in Donald J. Trump's office on June 6 or 7 when Trump Jr. told his father that a meeting to obtain adverse information from Clinton was going forward. Cohen did not recall Trump Jr. stating that the meeting was connected to Russia. From the tenor of the conversation, Cohen believed that Trump Jr. had previously discussed the meeting with his father, although Cohen was not involved in any such conversation. In an interview with the Senate Judiciary Committee, however, Trump Jr. stated that he did not inform his father about the emails or the upcoming meeting. Similarly, neither Manafort nor Kushner recalled anyone informing candidate Trump of the meeting, including Trump Jr. President Trump has stated to this office in written answers to questions that he has, quote, no recollection of learning at the time, end quote that his son, Manafort, or, quote, Kushner was considering participating in a meeting in June 2016 concerning potentially negative information about Hillary Clinton, end quote. The events of June 9, 2016. Arrangements for the meeting. We're now on page 116. Vetsilinskaya was in New York on June 9, 2016 for an appellate proceeding in the Prevzon civil forfeiture litigation. That day, Vetsilinskaya called Renat Akhmetchen, a Soviet-born U.S. lobbyist, part of the sentence there redacted by Bill Barr, and when she learned that he was in New York, invited him to lunch. Ashmetskin told the office, Mueller's office, that he had worked on issues relating to the Magnitsky Act and that he worked on the Prevzon litigation. Kavaledze and Anatoly Samacharnov, comma, a Russian-born translator who had assisted Vetselnitskaya with Magnitsky-related lobbying in the Prevzon case, also attended the lunch. Page 117. The next sentence is largely redacted by Bill Barr. Vetselniskaya said she was meeting, redacted by Bill Barr, and asked Akhmetshin what she should tell him. According to several participants in the lunch, Vetselniskaya showed Akhmetshin a document alleging financial misconduct by Bill Browder and the Ziff brothers, Americans with business in Russia, and those individuals subsequently making political donations to the DNC. The rest of that paragraph is deleted by Bill Barr. The group then went to the Trump Tower meeting. Subtitle 2, Conduct of the Meeting. Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner participated on the Trump side, while Kevaladze, Samacharov, well, we'll continue this. It's page 117 of the Mueller Report. 
Hey, let's talk about sleep. You know, there's some new studies out of Harvard and Johns Hopkins, really serious, solid stuff that show that chronic sleep deprivation can lead to depression, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Fancy word for, you know, like heart disease and things like that. Most of us need eight hours sleep. I mean, there is a spectrum, you know, from seven to nine, but the, the, the vast average is around eight hours sleep. And I've always been a light sleeper. My mom used to make jokes that I almost flunked out of kindergarten because I couldn't take a nap. And I'm really excited about this new product, the Pod by 8 Sleep. This is fascinating. One of sleep's biggest problems is temperature. It's tough to get a good night's sleep if you're too hot or too cold. And, and I'll tell you, Louise and I have very different preferences when it comes to this, you know, the temperature of the bed. And that's why I want to tell you about the Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. It was developed by leading sleep researchers after tracking 43 million hours of sleep. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and it adjusts the temperature of the bed automatically. That means if you like your bed cool, and your partner likes your bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed. Sleep longer and sleep deeper so you wake up refreshed and ready to take on the world. And to celebrate Independence Day, get a free gravity cooling blanket plus free shipping with your pod purchase, a $300 value, free. The offer ends Monday, July 8th. Visit 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P, 8sleep.com slash Tom, E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. I want to get into this question that Michael Tabaski writes about in today's New York Times. He asks this question in the headline. And I think it's something that we really need to grapple with and is getting virtually no coverage in the electronic media and no honest or serious discussion anywhere that I can find. And frankly, has not even been brought up once in the Democratic primaries or at least in the Democratic debates, and I think should become part of the Democratic debates. And the question is, do the Republicans even believe in democracy anymore? I, it seems to me that what has happened here with the Republican Party is that it has become a faction of billionaires. I mean, this is a billionaires, white racists or frightened white people, and misogynist and uh, that's kind of it. And Nixon started this with a Southern strategy in 1972 or 1968 rather, um, you know, the Southern strategy. And then it got amplified in a big way, you know, with Reagan and, you know, bringing in the billionaires and saying, okay, the Republican party is now officially the party of the, of the very, very, very rich, or at least the right wing, very rich who are willing to support it. That's now the Republican Party. And, but that wasn't quite enough. And so they, they brought in the anti-abortion folks, the, you know, the fundamentalist Christian, particularly the TV preachers, the guys, you know, hey, I need $54 million to buy a new jet. God told me that. Bringing those people and their followers in and bringing in the people who are afraid that the jackbooted thugs from the government are going to come and take their guns. 
they've cobbled together this uh, weird coalition that even in some total is not enough to win elections. And so instead what they're doing is massive voter suppression. Their billionaires are coming in with massive campaigns filled with lies. Uh, living here in Portland, Oregon, and it's great to be back home, by the way, and back in, the, in my own studio. Although I had a great time on the road. And thanks again, tip of the hat, to all the great folks at our various affiliated radio stations who hosted me during the book tour. But the Republican Party has basically put this thing together where they're saying, you know, what we're all about now is suppressing the vote. Aggressive gerrymandering. We saw in uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, you know, states controlled by Republicans, just prior to the 2016 election, you saw hundreds of thousands of people of legitimate voters, largely African-American and Hispanic and Asian, removed from the voting rolls. You saw the same thing, over a million people removed from the voting rolls in Georgia when uh, Stacey Abrams was on the ballot. And, you know, the result, of course, was was that the Republican ended up winning. Republicans increasingly are relying on structural stuff. In North Carolina, for example, you know, the vote in North Carolina is about 50-50 in terms of who they want representing them in the U.S. House of Representatives. And North Carolina has, as I recall, 13 uh, members of Congress. I might be off on that. But basically, they're ending up with nine or 10 Republicans and three Democrats with a 50-50 vote because of gerrymandering. And then the Supreme Court last week said, eh, political gerrymandering is just fine. Racial gerrymandering, no, you can't do that, but political gerrymandering, just fine. So they're just gonna start using the language of politics rather than the language of race to do the exact same thing, knowing that there are political divisions that are also racial divisions. I mean, you know, John Roberts and, and the right-wingers on the court just, just opened the door and so now you're going to see hundreds of, of uh, frankly, I think it's going to be billions of dollars, not hundreds of billions, but I think it's going to be probably over a billion dollars in this election cycle being poured into state legislatures and state governor's races because whatever party is in power after the 2020 election because of the census, every, this is in the Constitution. Every 10 years you take a census. And then in the following year or two, based on that census, you redraw your congressional districts so that they reflect where people have moved to or where people have moved from. And states that actually gain or lose population overall can actually gain or lose a congressional seat. Now, of course, the citizenship question was designed to really whack the states that have a lot of Hispanics in them. But, you know, the Supreme Court threw that out, although I think a lot of the damage has already been done. But this goes even beyond that. Um, so we've got this extreme gerrymandering that's going on. None of this stuff has anything to do with democracy. And I think the reason why is because the Republicans have literally no plan for America. They, you know, they, they want to do away with Medicare. They want to do away with Social Security. They've been singing that song since the 1930s about Social Security, since the 1960s about Medicare and Medicaid. They think it's socialism. They don't think it's the government's role. There's very few Republicans who will just come right out and tell you this, but this is how they all vote. They want to privatize Social Security, so that $2.5 trillion trust fund will go to the big banks in New York who fund Republican campaigns. They want to completely privatize our health care system um, and do away with Medicare and Medicaid so that the, the, the multi-billion dollar you know, health insurance companies that give big money to the Republican can candidates will get more. And I, I, the story I was telling earlier in the, in the show was 
um, because we live here in Portland, uh, we get ads for Washington State because you know, one of the largest cities in, in Washington State, Vancouver, is literally right across the river from us. You, you cross the bridge between, you know, over the Columbia River between Portland and Vancouver and you go from Oregon to Washington. So in the Portland television market and radio market, you're getting ads that are being paid for by groups in Washington State. Well, Jay Inslee, two years ago, got a carbon tax on the ballot. And it was very popular when it was first put on the ballot. And then the, and then the fossil fuel industry came in and they dug up this old former Republican, uh, uh, I believe he was the Secretary of State, who looks and talks like Mr. Rogers. He just seems like the sweetest guy around. And, he ne and, in, and in the ads, he never mentions the fact that he was the Republican Secretary of State. And he says, you know, this carbon tax is just going to destroy the economy of the state of Washington. People are going to lose jobs because of this carbon tax. Well, in fact, that, that was not the case. It would actually create jobs. It would create a lot of jobs. And it wasn't going to raise the cost of living for Washingtonians. A lot of it was going to be refunded right back to them, particularly people who drive a lot. But because, you know, these corporations were able, because of the Supreme Court rulings, you know, particularly Citizens United, they were able to pour millions and millions of dollars into this. And the good government folks, you know, people like you and me were like, I think I saw three ads in favor of the carbon tax. And every single hour, every ad block had this, you know, Mr. Rogers guy telling the people of Washington, be afraid, be very afraid. And of course, it went down in flames. And then you get Chuck Todd on NBC saying to Jay Inslee, well, you know, your own state voted down your policies. Well, no, I mean, it's uh, yes, that's what happened. But uh, it wasn't because the state didn't like their policies. It was because it was because, a, you know, a former Republican and a bunch of oil companies lied through their friggin teeth to people, you know, with millions and millions of dollars. I think it was a 20 million dollar, you know, ad buy. So what do we, how do we deal with this if you've got an entire political party representing about half the political spectrum that literally doesn't believe in democracy? That thinks that the only way that they can win because they have no good ideas, because the ideas that they do have are largely hated by the American people. They want to destroy labor unions, destroy the labor movement. They want to keep the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour. They want, they, you know, which is, it's now it's the, at the low, it's never been, uh, we've never had a period of time as long as right now during which the minimum wage was not increased. This is the longest stretch ever. Why? Because Republicans. And you've got, you know, an absolutely immoral guy, Mitch McConnell, who stole a, a Supreme Court seat from, from our nation's first black president. And now the court is, is, is handing down these decisions like saying, oh yeah, gerrymandering, that's just fine. So how do we deal with this? In his article, Michael Tomaski, he talks about this thing called competitive authoritarianism. He says, is there a middle ground? It was written by the uh, Stephen Levitsky, who also wrote uh, How Democracies Die. And the competitive authoritarianism, it's civilian regimes in which formal democratic institutions exist and are widely viewed as the primary means of gaining power, but in which incumbents' abuse of the state places them at a significant advantage vis-a-vis -vis their opponents. And he said, you know, and he talks about how this has happened in Mozambique, in Kenya, in Cameroon, in Taiwan, in Malaysia, in Cambodia, in Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. All of these states have basically lost their democracy and become these kind of quasi semi-authoritarian states. And this is the direction the Republican Party is pushing us. What do we do about this? Malcolm Nance uh, was talking about this over the weekend. 
And he pointed out that President Putin of Russia gave a speech in which he said liberal democracy is dying, is obsolete, I think is the word he used. By liberal democracy, he's not talking about Bernie Sanders. He's not talking about liberals. He's talking about what the framers of the Constitution created in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. That was what he was talking about. The United States of America, we're a liberal democracy. The European countries that are members of the European Union, liberal democracies, the UK, if, if they split from the EU, liberal democracy, Australia, liberal democracy, basically suggesting that liberal democracies are toast and can and should be replaced by largely autocratic governments. Governments that meet the definition of a merger of state and corporate interests or state and billionaire interests along with belligerent nationalism. And Donald Trump agreed with that. This is what Malcolm Nance said. He said, there's the United States of America and then there's Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a wannabe autocrat. The United States has now an official policy of Donald Trump's government of, has abandoned liberal democracy, which was formed in the building right behind me at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Trump does not believe it. To say that it's the end of multiculturalism is to say it's the end of the United States of America. American democracy that Donald Trump says he wants to destroy and he's come out and said it now. I mean, essentially, you know, yeah, you know, Putin was right about liberal democracy. But I think most people, the media is treating it like, oh, Trump doesn't know the difference between liberal democracy, as you learn in civics, and liberals, right? And that may be true. But frankly, if you look at his actions, he doesn't believe in liberal democracy as the founders came up with either. And these are serious threats. I mean, we've had a liberal democracy for 244 years, and Donald Trump wants to destroy that. And in the meantime, he's sucking up to all these dictators. He's, you know, Tucker Carlson came up, this is the latest, this bizarre new, I, I don't even know the word, excuse, I guess, for Donald Trump doing a photo op with Kim Jong-un in North Korea instead of, instead of actually any kind of policy. This is what Tucker Carlson said. He said, you know, you got to be honest about what it means to lead a country. It means killing people. Really? Is he talking about the death penalty? No, I don't. He says, not on the scale that the North Koreans do, but a lot of countries commit atrocities, including a number that we're closely allied with. Well, yeah, that's true of Saudi Arabia. I'm with you. You've got apartheid governments that, we're, that, we, that we support. You've got violent dictatorships that we support. But instead of saying, yeah, we do that, and therefore we should suck up to North Korea, as Tucker Carlson and Fox News are saying, I ask the question, why are we supporting these countries? Why are we in bed with Saudi Arabia? Why are we not encouraging Israel to, to come to some sort of a reconciliation with the Palestinians so they can end apartheid? Why, you know, why are, you know, why, why? Why are we supporting Duterte in, in murdering people just because they're drug users? Why are we supporting al-Sisi, you know, a military coup? Why are we supporting these anti-democratic movements around the world? I think, frankly, Richard Engel said one of the reasons that Kim in North Korea loves Donald Trump is because Trump has no moral center, basically. Yeah, amen. So how do we deal with this? What do we do about this? Well, obviously, we need to change who's You're in the White House. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And obviously, we do that. Well, you know, you've got impeachment as well. But, you know, clearly, we've got to do something coming up uh, in 2020. <laughs> you've got to get people out to vote.
You know, now that uh, Louise and I are pushing our late 60s here, uh, under eye puffiness and bags under the eyes and all that kind of stuff is kind of something you start noticing, right? And uh, for a couple of years, I people, you know, people have recommended everything from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags, but <laughs> frankly, none of them work. Uh, what really works well, and what Louise absolutely loves this stuff, is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible, with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet or wrinkles or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to triplexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's triplexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm, it really works. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. This is page 117. They're talking about the June 9th, uh, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. This is the notorious meeting with the whole gang. Conduct of the meeting. Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner participated on the Trump side, while Kavelladze, Samachrov, M. Achmetshin, and Goldstone attended with Veselnitskaya. The office spoke, this is the prosecutor's office, Mueller's office, spoke to every participant except Vetzelnitskaya and Trump Jr., the latter of whom declined to be voluntarily interviewed by the office. And the rest of that paragraph was redacted by Bill Barr. The meeting lasted approximately 20 minutes, the next sentence redacted by Bill Barr. Gladstone recalled that Trump Jr. invited Vetzelnitskaya to begin, but did not say anything about the subject of the meeting. Participants agreed that Vetzelnitskaya stated that the Ziff brothers had broken Russian laws and had donated their profits to the DNC or the Clinton campaign. She asserted that the Ziff brothers had engaged in tax evasion and money laundering in both the United States and Russia. The next sentence was deleted by Bill Barr. According to Akhmetshin, Trump Jr. asked follow-up questions about how the alleged payments could be tied specifically to the Clinton campaign, but Vetzelnitskaya indicated that she could not trace the money once it entered the United States. Kavaladze similarly recalled that Trump Jr. asked what they have on Clinton, and Kushner became aggravated and asked, what are we doing here? Akhmetshin then spoke about U.S. sanctions imposed under the Magnitsky Act and Russia's response prohibiting U.S. adoption of Russian children. Several participants recalled that Trump Jr. commented that Trump is a private citizen and there was nothing they could do at that time. Notes that Manafort took on his phone reflect the general flow of the conversation, although not all of its details. At some point in the meeting, Kushner sent an iMessage to Manafort stating, waste of time, followed immediately by two separate emails to assistants at Kushner companies with requests that they call to give him an excuse to leave. Samo Choronov recalled that Kushner departed the meeting before it concluded. Vetselnitskaya recalled the same when interviewed by the press in July 2017. Vetselnitskaya's press interviews and written statements to Congress differ materially from other accounts. In a July 2017 press interview, Vetselnitskaya claimed she has no connection to the Russian government and had not referred to any derogatory information concerning the Clinton campaign when she met with the Trump campaign officials. Vetselnitskaya's November 2017 written submission to the Senate Judiciary Committee 
stated that the purpose of the June 9 meeting was not to connect with the Trump campaign, but rather to have a private meeting with Donald Trump Jr., a friend of my good acquaintance's son, on the matter of assisting me or my colleagues in informing the Congress members as to the criminal nature of manipulation and interference with the legislative activities of the U.S. Congress, end quote. In other words, Veselinskaya claimed her focus was on Congress and not the campaign. No witness, however, recalled any reference to Congress during the meeting. Veselinskaya also maintained that she, quote, attended the meeting as a lawyer of Denis Katsiev, end quote, the previously mentioned owner of Prevzon Holdings, but that she did not introduce herself in this capacity. In a July 2017 television interview, Trump Jr. stated that while he had no way to gauge the reliability, credibility, or accuracy of what Goldstone had stated was the purpose of the meeting, if, quote, someone has information on our opponent, maybe this is something I should hear them out, end quote. Trump Jr. further stated in September 2017 congressional testimony that he thought he should, quote, listen to what Rob and his colleagues had to say, end quote. Participants in the June 9, 2016 meeting began receiving inquiries from attorneys representing the Trump Organization starting in approximately June 2017. It's the Mueller Report. Tom Harmon here with you. Just looking through our Twitter feed here, a lot of folks saying, basically, vote blue no matter who, 2020. That's the hashtag. And I'm with it. We have an existential threat to our democracy here. But... You know, it's been a few days now since the debates. They were Wednesday, Thursday of last week. We've all had an opportunity to not only digest the debates and all the media horse race coverage of them, but also to think about and read about what the people actually said. And I know a lot of the candidates who a lot of Americans didn't know, you know, Marianne Williams, Andrew Yang, Bill de Blasio, the Google numbers are just exploding on these people. The fundraising numbers for Pete Buttigieg have really, really gone up. We saw this with Barack Obama in 2008, right? Barack Obama was doing really well with fundraising in the African-American community, but he hadn't broken out into the larger community. And then he did. And then he showed up, you know, with Hillary Clinton. He broke out into the larger community and started raising money right across the board and became president of the United States. And so the question that we don't know the answer to right now is Mayor Pete drawing most of his support largely from the LGBTQ community, or has he already broken out into the larger community? And if not, when will he or will he? And I'm guessing that he probably will. He's got a hell of a message, and the way that he's been campaigning, it's like, oh, and by the way, he's a gay man who's married to another man. I'm actually very, very pleased with how that's being treated, you know, that it hasn't become a larger issue. And instead, his policies and his service to his country is there. So anyhow, I was asking, you know, if your favorite candidate, and I know, you know, we've done these polls on this show. We do instant polls and things. And you know, Bernie was on this program for 11 years, every single Friday, taking calls from people. You know, some of the people who worked on Bernie's campaign back four years ago told me that pretty much, you know, particularly early on, most of the rallies he would show up at, people would yell brunch with Bernie, right? So for many people, their introduction to Bernie was this program. And so I get it that there's a lot of people who love Bernie who, who listen to this program. But if he ends up not being the nominee, who's your second choice? Or if your first choice is Kamala Harris or is Liz Warren or is Pete Buttigieg or is Marianne Williamson or whoever it may be, if your first candidate doesn't make it, who's your second or third choice? And how do you think that that person being president will affect the future direction of America? Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? You know, I just wanted to chime in on the debate that was last week. Mm -hmm. Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Yeah, and more specifically Mayor Buttigieg's performance, because I think he did something that 
we didn't give him enough credit for. And that's when he was asked about the police shooting that happened in his town there. He openly admitted, like, yes, this was my fault. You know, we have not achieved the task that we had set out to. And right. And how long has it been since you've heard a politician admit that they blew it or that they didn't quite hit the, the goal that they were trying to reach? That's amazing. That humility there, I think, just, like, increased my respect for him yeah. so much. And I wish that Joe Biden would learn a lot from his approach, because I don't think it hurt him in that debate at all. I, th I think it helped increase his credibility, like seeing him as a human being, somebody that can admit when they're at fault and somebody that says, you know, no, we didn't get it done. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. And yeah. I thought that, you know, him saying that really spoke to his character. And his numbers are going up and his fundraising apparently is going up spectacularly. And, you know, and the question is, is this because a broad cross-section of Americans are saying, uh, you know, whether he's gay or not doesn't matter. He's a great guy and we love what he's saying and we're going to throw some money at him. Or has the broader gay community in particular, but the LGBTQ community overall, kind of gotten to the point where they're saying, you know, this guy actually has a shot at it and we're going to kick in some money. So, you know, his fundraising numbers are doing really well. Where is that money coming from? I don't know the answer to that question. If it's the latter, there's a limit to how far he can go. If it's the former, then he can shoot the moon. And we'll see. And it's always been that way, by the way, with candidates who have very specific constituencies, whether they're racial or ideological or regional or whatever it may be. If he ends up being the candidate, I would vote for him in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Um, pretty much any anybody on that stage, I, I would vote for. Enthusiastically, um, do I, do I think yes. Oh, very much so. I, I don't think, you know, when everything clears, he's going to be the candidate. But I think he's got a bright political future ahead of himself. And then, yeah. you know, eventually we might see the first gay president. Um, I would have. Yeah, the no first openly gay president. I think we've had at least yeah. one gay president and probably two. Yeah, openly. But, correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Marty, thank you for the call. Mark in Michigan City, Indiana. Hey, Mark, your thoughts on Democratic candidates? Hey, good morning, Tom. First time calling. Thank you. My first choice is Elizabeth Warren, and I believe she's picked up the complete playbook manual, Bernie Sanders. And I think Bernie originally entered the race for his one issue, for among his many issues, Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren has picked up the torch and will carry it. And I think in a few months down the line, if Bernie sees a broker convention, he'll step aside and I think let, let uh, Elizabeth uh, take it. We'll see how that shakes out, Mark. I remember very well, I mean, Bernie was on, on this program uh, for some of that, um, that uh, in 2016, uh, or really in 2015, when people were calling into the program constantly and saying, Bernie, jump into the race. And he was saying, you know, I just, uh, I want to see who, you know, if somebody else gets into the race, he said, he said you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I remember this very clearly. He was saying that he felt that Hillary Clinton needed a primary challenger um, he just wasn't sure it should be him. And the person that most people were talking about challenging uh, Hillary Clinton was Elizabeth Warren. And I, I, I personally, this is just my opinion, I had no conversation with Bernie or any of his people about this at the time, but, but my sense of it was that Bernie was waiting to see if Liz Warren was going to take on Hillary Clinton. And when she didn't, then Bernie got into the race. And of course, the rest is history. And then he did so spectacularly well that he's, you know, he's back again, even though Liz Warren, Elizabeth Warren is in the in the race. Back to you, Mark. Yes. And I'll support all candidates, no matter who gets the nomination, even if it's Joe Biden, I'm going to campaign for him and set up yard signs in Indiana. We got to get this tyrant out of office. Yeah. 
that's the way I feel about it. Okay, great. Thanks a lot for the call. Susan in Inglis, Florida. Hey, Susan, what's up? Greetings and salutations, Tom. Thank you, I'm Susan. I'm kind of looking at Bernie or Elizabeth. I think they both have great plans mm-hmm. and know how they're going to implement them and, and finance them. I look at the uh, candidates that we have on the uh, Democratic ticket. We've got a lot of talent out there. I'd like to see Bill or Camilla as AGs. We need a pit bull to clean up the mess that Trump is creating. Yeah. I'd like to see Marianne as maybe an ambassador to smooth some of our allies' feathers. She would Trump make, I mean, I think Marianne Williamson would make a great president. If she can get there, boy, would I work my heart out for her. If not, I think that she would make a great ambassador to the United Nations or Secretary of State. And I would like to also see uh, maybe Tulsi or Pete work within the VA system. Yeah, or, or maybe, put Tulsi uh, in charge uh, of the Defense Department. Yeah, well, see, they both have military background. They both right. have seen the horrors of what war can do. Yep. What happens to the, the people that have to go over to those places and how it changes them and affects them the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, but, I, uh, I, yeah I'm with you. I, this, it's, it, we really have an extraordinary field of people. There's, there's so many good people. This is why I was so basically offended by the one caller who just wanted to take shots at people. Susan, thank you for the call. I really appreciate that. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? Yeah, hey, Professor. There was a survey taken of 25,000 people outside of the United States of America, and uh, they don't have a very good opinion favorable opinion of our country right now. And you know what's obvious to everybody is that we got a psychopath in the White House. And what's even more amazing to me is we were concerned we may not be able to, to get him out. Of, we know we got a psychopath in the yeah. White House, and yeah. we may not be able to get him out. What does that say for us? And my choice for presidential candidate in, in a fantasy world is Marianne Williamson. In the real world, okay, we're going to deal with the real world, Papa Joe Biden and Stacey Abrams. Thank you very much. Morris, thanks a lot for the call. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Kathy, your thoughts? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to let you know that this is a thing now on social media with people calling up saying they were Bernie supporters. They get a little crazy, and then they start going off about 2016 and the DNC and the DCCC, and if they do that again, I'm going to vote for third party. I personally think they're paid trolls. Yeah, these Um, are the kind of memes that come out of either the Russian media or the RNC. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, I got hit with it yesterday. I run a little uh, Facebook group. I won't give you the name. We just share news and information, like a lot of people, with a progressive bent. And I just couldn't believe the discussion I was having with this guy. And I said, so you mean to tell me that you would rather tank our democracy just because a Democratic candidate doesn't check off all your boxes? Finally, he stopped. He, he stopped yeah. trolling. I don't like to ban people, but I do like to engage in discussion. And I think that's the way you have to frame it, because that's exactly what we're looking at in this election. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Kathy, thanks for sharing that story with us. That was a great one. Clint in St. Peter's, Missouri. Hey, Clint, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey, Tom. Uh, in regards to the candidates and the issues, I really like Bernie, of course, and Elizabeth Warren. But I'll tell you what, I read, I think it was a book club book for you, It's Time to Fight Dirty by, I think his name is David Ferris. Man, I think the number one issue for every progressive should be to expand a progressive majority for the future. And that includes adding two states to the Senate, D.C. and Puerto Rico. That would yep. give us four I agree. liberal senators moving the cap on the Congress. That will basically guarantee a liberal Congress for the rest, for another generation, giving the filibuster. And uh, I really like to see you include that in your questioning when you have a candidate on the air. I think that the more we can talk about that, the more... Uh, support we can get behind that from the grassroots level. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Thank you very much. Caesar in Chicago. Hey, Caesar, what's up? Thank you for taking my call. First of all, I think that we have a good team of qualified candidates for um, president on the Democratic ticket. I don't believe any one person has a monopoly on good ideas or suggestions. My first choice, and I don't have a second one up there because I think there are a lot of good people there. My first choice, first choice is Julian Castro. Mm -hmm. I'll give you three reasons. One, he's a progressive. If he wasn't a progressive, he wouldn't even be considered. Right. Two, as, as an administrator of both the major city, San Antonio, and Secretary of HUD, he's had a very good record. No scandals and a number of achievements. Right, and, and he knows how to run a large agency, which is what the president has to do. And that's obviously exactly. something Trump doesn't know how to do. He ran a little family business with seven employees. 100% with you there. And lastly, he was the first and uh, the one who came out with the most direct and comprehensive approach to the whole refugee crisis in Central America. His quote-unquote Marshall Plan uh, needs to be looked at and taken down research. That is the approach we need to take if we are serious about resolving the refugee crisis in Central America. Anything else is short-term thinking, and it's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, he's a solid guy, and he's got some excellent plans. Thank you, Caesar. Uh, it's great to hear from you. Thank you, Gloria and Shannon, North Carolina. Gloria, your thoughts? Oh, uh, yeah, Tom. I'm with everybody else. Vote blue no matter who. But what I wanted to put out to everybody is to be diligent with whoever you choose. After the debate last week, for some reason... I don't know who is doing it or what, but billboards, TV commercials, TV ads, and radio ads in the works started popping up for Tulsi Gabbard. Mm -hmm. I mean, billboards with every corner practically. My husband, he works on the ports in Port of Charleston in South Carolina. He said you can't turn a corner without some kind of billboard or poster of Tulsi Gabbard hmm. all over South Carolina and the southern parts of North Carolina. That's and interesting. They, and they're moving on up. She goes on Fox News a lot. I wonder if there's like, you know, a right-wing contingent that likes her. I've been trying to investigate the group that's posted them and mm. i'm having a time finding anything on them 
Yeah. And that, that kind of worries me, too. Yeah. But as far as Tulsi concerned, I'm not going to say I don't like her, but it's just, just be careful. That's what I'm telling everybody, to, yep. to look careful into anybody. That said, right now, you know, she's saying and doing, I think, a lot of the right things in the, in the campaign. And so I don't want to be dissing yeah. her. But I know that the Drudge Poll said that she had won. And then it turns out that there was actually some sort of a right-wing funded campaign to make that happen. And I, you know, I don't know why. I, I you know, I can speculate about why. But I, frankly, I don't want to because I don't want to turn this into a, anything that, yeah, you know, is I, I understand taking that. a bite out of but our I, Democrats. I, so who are your favorites, Gloria? Oh, my favorite is Elizabeth Warren, especially, and Kamala Harris. Yeah. But I know two women won't get on the ticket. I would love to see that, but I know two women well, won't get on You know, you're, the you're probably the, the 20th person who said that to me. We've had two men on the ticket forever. I mean, you know, two women. Yeah, and it would be nice if we had two women on the ticket, but my dream ticket is Elizabeth and Kamala. Yeah. If that was the ticket, I think they could beat Donald Trump. I really do. And, I mean, there's a lot of other yeah. good tickets that could, too, but uh, I get it. Gloria, thank you. Thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your stories with us. Nancy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Nancy, your thoughts? Hi. So, vote blue no matter who. I was a Bernie supporter in 2016, but Hillary Clinton was the most qualified candidate I've ever seen, so I had no problem voting for her. Yep. And for this one, Elizabeth Warren sounds like the last person. Now, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are my top two. Mm-hmm. And I like Mayor Pete a lot. I was actually a little surprised that you were talking about how it was all about whether the gay people were supporting him. And well, we just, he like just had huge cool. fundraising numbers. I think he raised like $28 million, which is just a mind-boggling amount of money. And like I said, we saw the same thing back in 2007 as then-Senator Obama was coming on the stage. And, you know, the question was, can he break out beyond the black vote, people of color supporting him? And sure enough, he did. Now the question is, Is Pete, has he already hit the mainstream? I think he has, frankly. But I'm sorry, yeah, back I to you, Nancy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think of him as a gay candidate. I think of him as a young, he's probably too young, too inexperienced, but I like him. And my yeah. other thought was, I really think we need to win the Senate. So mm-hmm. if Beto or Julian Castro, I like them both, but they're not getting much traction. I think that they won or both should, they should drop out and, you know, get that Senate seat. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when they don't get traction, I'm not saying they should drop out now. Well, it's going to turn on fundraising and on polling and small fundraising, not not the big fundraising. So I think that's a good thing. Nancy, thanks for sharing your preferences with us and your thoughts. Jeanette in Spirit Lake, Idaho. Hey, Jeanette, what's on your mind? So my choices are Bernie and Tulsi. I think, you know, it's about trust. And I think they're both true progressives. I actually take question, you know, I think some of these candidates, you have to look at where their money is coming from. But I think it kind of comes down to you know, why nominate a neoliberal or a centrist trying to sound like a progressive mm-hmm. when you can get the real thing? You know, I mean, it's just like when the Dems run a blue dog against a Republican, the Republican runs wins every time, you know. We can trust Bernie. You know, everyone is trying to emulate him. Why would you not take the original, you know, right. and Tulsi to stay progressive once you're elected? You know, I mean, that mm-hmm. to me is who's going to who's going to do that? You know, Tulsi, yeah. I think, is awesome. She had the guts to stand up to the DNC. You know, I mean, questioning where her support is coming from. I don't think, you know, she's so anti-war. I don't think the military-industrial complex um, supported Republicans are really pushing her. I think there's a strong anti-war contingent. That may well um, be. That and, may well and, be. And, yeah. and, and many of us, you know, a little bit further to the left, I'm not, you know, I mean, you know, far, far left is not where any of us are, but, um, you know, Tulsi has strong support there. You know, I think she's, um, her 
her military background, her youth makes her even stronger. Mm. You know, and I and what happens, you know, once they get into office, that's what you were kinda of asking about earlier, you know, what are they gonna be able to do? And you know, and that's Bernie's strongest message is you know, we have to get past the corporate media, we have to get past the establishment, we have to mobilize. If people don't stand up, nothing's going to happen. And if we don't take the Senate, you know, I mean, he's not going to be able to do what he wants to do. You know, everything within this progressive vision, you know, stems on getting the people in office that are willing to do that, like AOC. And if you don't have somebody like Bernie, and and Tulsi has the support too, that's why you're seeing those billboards everywhere, and that's why so many of us are mentioning Tulsi. If you don't have somebody that excites people, like Bernie does, it's not going to happen. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard also was, you know, I think she was one of the very first members of the House of Representatives to come out in support of Bernie back four years ago. And um, that may be why a lot of people are kind of tying the two of them together. We'll see. Jeanette, thank you for your call and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Bob in Chuckney, Tennessee. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Uh, good afternoon, Tom. During the debate, Bernie said that the federal judges could be uh, rotated. And I was just wondering about that. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, Article 3 deals with the courts. And Article 3, Section 2 says that the Supreme Court shall be subject to regulation by Congress. And what historically that has meant is that Congress, legislatively, they pass a law to determine how many members of the Supreme Court there are. This was FDR's court packing scheme in 1937. He was going to pass a law that said that uh, he wasn't going to change the total number of members of the court, but that any member of the court who was over 70, which was five out of four of them at that time, um, all of the 70-plus-year-olds would all become one vote, and then they would add a number of members of the court at that, in that case, it would have been they would have added four more members of the court to make up for, you know, to bring it back up to nine votes. Um, what Bernie is saying is that the, if you read the Constitution carefully, um, just because somebody has been put on the Supreme Court doesn't mean that they're a Supreme Court justice for life. It simply means that they are a federal judge for life. So if a president wanted to move, uh, you know, uh, say Neil Gorsuch, you know, the, 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 the stolen seat, right, off the Supreme Court and, and put a new person on the Supreme Court, you can't just say, Neil, you're fired. But what you can say is, Neil, you're now going to be on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, you're going to hate them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that, uh, you know, Bernie, I, I didn't recall that it was Bernie who suggested that specifically. I knew that that suggestion was made. And if that was Bernie's suggestion, I hope that he can come on the program and talk about it, because I think it's a good idea. And I've got a book coming out about the Supreme Court in about five months. And that's one of the few things that's not in it. And I wish, you know, this is like stuff happens so fast, you know, it's a, but. Yeah, spot on. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. Dave in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Dave, what's up? Oh, thanks for coming to the Frugal Muse. That was great, and you explained certain passages, you know, and, and using your voice to emphasize. That was awesome. Thanks. Anyway, I, okay, so I would recommend, or I would say, like, I'm Bernie, I think Bernie's a gold standard, and then, like the previous caller, he is the fire, but I like Elizabeth. Okay, and then I would say, I like Tulsi because... You know, previous caller said, but also, you know, remember in 16, she or stepped down from her position in the DNC because she wanted to back Bernie and Wasserman Schultz, you know, ultimatum. As I recall, I, I don't think I'm right. She uh, resigned her position on the Democratic National Committee because she felt that the, the DNC was favoring Hillary Clinton. Let's just say that broadly. I mean, okay, I don't remember okay. the specifics. It, and, yeah, yeah exactly. and that offended I her. I, she's a vet and everything. And, I mean, and that's I, a very principled position to take. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I just applaud her. And nobody ever remembers, seems to remember that, but she had the courage of her convictions, you know, and that shows great character. And I just really admire that. I mean, I was a reservist in the uh, Vietnam era, and, you know, so that's called fidelity, like when we get promotions and stuff, you know, right. that's beyond the certificate. Okay, and then I would like, uh, let's see, I like Inslee because he's got the single-minded focus for climate, climate change. Yep. Yeah, I like Mary Ann because of her values. And, you know, what she stands for, but I don't know, she doesn't have the political um, experience, so I don't know. She ran for Congress in California and came within a whisker of, of really? being, yeah, and so she's been through a political campaign. Oh, well, that, I didn't so know. So she understands yeah, she, politics pretty well. She, I mean, she, I, I just love her, I mean, what she stands for is awesome. Yeah. Kamala troubled me a little bit because of her banking connections, and she didn't prosecute Mnuchin, and again, I don't know the details, but on the yeah. internet, it's like she won't talk about it. Corey, I know just in the past, he's backed, I like him, but he's backed corporations like pharmaceuticals, you know. Although uh, he's now take, he's now saying he won't take any more money from, from Big Pharma. So well, that would be great. Yeah. And then I think um, Bill de Blasio, boy, he really came through and uh, seemed like uh, he had some good, you know, yeah. ideas and character, plus, you know, who he's, he's married. Can you imagine Bill, yeah, he's married to an African-American woman, and, and yeah, and can you imagine Bill de Blasio and Donald Trump on the same stage? No, that's he, exactly what I was he, thinking, because he would over him, he'd rip his I, arms off. He would just take Donald Trump apart. Um, yeah, that's true too. Right? Remember how he t intimidated, tried to intimidate Hillary? Yeah. Standing behind her and all that stuff yeah. on the stage. Blasio would turn around and punch him, or yeah. verbally. I mean, you know, it's yeah. I'm with you, Dave. I want to hey, get I'm, a couple more. Can I one more thing? Sure. Yeah. Quickly. Uh, I, could you, is, can you back or um, promote or encourage people to watch uh, documentaries? You know, like uh, the the brainwashing of my dad. Yeah. And like my Michael. Jen, uh, what's her name's? Yeah. You were in it, but because I try to talk to people, my friends and family, and n nobody is, everybody's clueless. Nobody, we're not, you know, and if we can't get on the same page, how are we going to, you know, make any change? Yeah, I'm with you. Brainwashing of My Dad is a brilliant documentary. Oh, it's, it is. It's it probably is on awesome. Netflix right now, and everybody should watch it. Dave, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Rick in Baltimore. Hey, Rick, your thoughts? Mayor Pete for the primary here in Maryland. Mm -hmm. I don't care who gets the nomination. Yeah, vote blue no matter who. I don't switch parties. I don't vote Republican at all. Yeah, but we need. A, we also thing, need. A, can't Rick? We need a candidate who's going to who's going to turn out the base. We need a candidate who's going to cause you know young people and boomers in particular. I mean, that seems to be the, the you know the people in the middle are are kind of the the middle working class and they're just not all that engaged. But we need a candidate who's going to who's going to excite people and get them turned out. That's what Obama did. Yeah, I agree. Uh, can I ask one more thing? Sure. Um, I guess you and your wife are happy not to be in Washington come Thursday. Uh, yeah. And Trump wants it's tanks now on the National Mall. It's about him. And yeah. I, I, no. I oh, it's crazy. Rick, I got to run, but it's, it's crazy. And now Donald Trump says he wants tanks after he's, you know, it's like... He's turned the 4th of July, our, our the birthday of our nation, into a vanity project. And of course he's hustling, hey, come stay in the Trump Hotel. It's obscene. It's, I, don't, I don't have a better word for it than obscene. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, tell your friends about our program. Spread the good word. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.